we are now faced with something that is so global and so uniform. Uh, it's really terrifying. And that's why, as, our, our, as RFK Jr. says in his book, this is, our, this is a battle for our lives. This might be the battle for all of our lives, all of, of our time. And, uh, and this is no time to sit back and be complicit. Hello, and welcome to Make Language Create Again. Today, it is my great honor and joy to talk to Manuel Garcia, who is an amazing human being and my hero because we need brave doctors like that. So Emmanuel Garcia is a psychiatrist. He got his medical degree from University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1986, and he has been practicing in New Zealand. Thank you for doing this conversation. So if you want to say a few words about yourself. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I've really, uh, listen, I've, I've been following your writings and I really enjoy them. I think they're really actually superb. And I want to congratulate you on what you are doing and uh, your the or the articulation uh, that you have for the ability to really express things in a in a very I think very powerful and a very um, very compelling and solid way is quite wonderful. So you know, keep that up. It's really great. You've got a lot. I'm sure you have a lot of admirers now with your uh, writings. Well, uh, thank so you. About, yeah, so about me, really, well, I graduated from Penn 86 as a, and then I became a psychiatrist and trained at, in Philadelphia and also became a psychoanalyst. And I practiced there as a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, psychotherapist from 1990 until uh, 2006 when I emigrated to New Zealand, where I became uh, basically a public health psychiatrist. So I was doing very different work in the States. Mainly I was doing, uh, you know, psychoanalysis, uh, psychotherapy. Uh, they were the, that was my primary practice, basically. Intensive psychotherapy, you know, psychoanalysis is a very engaged, long, engaging procedure and whatnot. And, uh, and a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, public health uh, just towards the end of that stay. But what I also did during that time for, for just over eight years, I was a, a consultant to um, a conservatory of music, the Curtis Institute of Music, which is like, uh, if you know about Juilliard, it's Philadelphia's sort of Juilliard. It's a, a bit smaller than Juilliard, very well known. Uh, tremendous number of world-class musicians have emerged from that school and have taught there, and et cetera. It's a great, great place. And I was a psychiatric consultant for about eight years. And as a result, I got to uh, really uh, enjoy my work with highly uh, accomplished creative people, and also to do things like um, start health education programs and uh, help with performance enhancement and whatnot. So I have, an, I have a great interest in music and some of my writings have dealt with the psychology of uh, certain musicians like Rachmaninoff and Scriabin, um, Bruno Walter, uh, Gustav Mahler. Uh, for example, Gustav Mahler met with Freud for a very famous conversation in Leiden. And I wrote some wrote papers about these people. Uh, and as again, as an offshoot, I, uh, I developed a sort of a, a technique of a very super slow, super soft practicing uh, to help with string players and to help their uh, technical abilities. So that's sort of a nutshell of some of my interests and, and whatnot. That is quite amazing. And then 2020 happened. Well, I'm doing, I'm um, here in, in New Zealand practicing basic, very public health psychiatry, you know, which is uh, it's a general psychiatry and uh, a public health system. And, and it's, it's hard work. It's very hard work. You have a lot of patients. The patients are in great duress. Uh, the health system here, you know, like every health system with mental health is, is struggling struggling to fill gaps with uh, nurses and other allied health practitioners and psychiatrists. Uh, but it was, it's very, very hard work, but I enjoyed the work. I think I've been, I was able to help quite a lot of people. Uh, 2020 happened and well, it happened all across the world. And um, I would say that immediately I began to detect, you know, something was rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, nothing seemed to add up from the very, very beginning. 
from those images of the Chinese soldiers uh, hosing the streets down in Wuhan with chlorine or whatever they were using, uh, barricading people in their apartments, the story of the bat, um, and then the issue about cases being confounded with um, people testing positive for something that still, as far as I know, has really not really been isolated. The way they the way they get the uh, sequences of these so-called viruses is it's a very complex process. And I don't know enough because I'm not a virologist or immunologist uh, to know uh, all the details, but other people have looked into it. As far as I know, the, the, the virus or whatever uh, the virus is that is going around has not been purely isolated and, and whatnot. But let's leave that aside. Uh, 2020 came and... As you know, the world, the reaction of the world was really, uh, it was almost in unison, like a conductor just said, okay, let's go down to Pianissimo and everything shut down. And it was absolutely amazing how basically the entire world worked in concert to, um, uh, from their perspective, contain this, the deadliest pathogen in human history. Uh, from perspective of, from my perspective, I think the policies were strange. They were contradictory. Uh, they were certainly uh, incurred. They were incursions into the liberties of individuals. I think there's no question about that. The first time in history, when do you when do you quarantine or lockdown? And lockdown is a prison phrase. Remember, the only time I've ever heard lockdown is a prison, basically. Okay, when do you lock down healthy people? And and you look around other parts of the world, lockdowns were going on for a very, very, very long time. Uh, masks were imposed. And there's a whole issue about mask wearing and the efficacy of masks. And I, you know, I would encourage all of your listeners to look up and find data about whether masks actually prevent the transmission or infection of respiratory coronaviruses. Um, Social, so-called social distancing. It's interesting. It's not social at all. It's quite antisocial to distance people. So social distancing came into play. Restrictions came into play. And again, I would encourage your listeners to look up what is the science behind the two-meter rule, the two-yard rule, the one-yard rule, the one-and-a-half-yard rule. It's a panoply of absurdities in a way. And my, my, initial, my initial feelings as a, a thinking person would be, well, you know, you want to get a beat on whatever's out there. You want to, you want to do things safely, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps shut, in New Zealand, they shut off the borders, which is why there were so few cases initially. But uh, after that, the, the goal here, the stated goal here was they were going to eliminate the coronavirus altogether. That was their goal. I knew from, a, from the beginning that was a, a quixotic goal. You would not be able to eliminate a corona respiratory virus. Half the one third of the common cold is a corona respiratory virus. It's going to travel around. So what you should do, I think, I, my thought was as a common sense approach, I'd protect those who are vulnerable, like those of you know medical conditions or older, just like they might be hit by the flu. You want to protect them from things, help them in whatever way you can, and basically uh, aim for a natural immunity to develop. Um, and that has not been the approach they've taken here. They've taken uh, a very interesting and I think quite draconian and dictatorial or totalitarian approach. So we find ourselves here under a now a traffic-like system which imposes uh, quite a lot of restrictions and most alarmingly, I think, and this will tie into other things that are going on around the world, uh, they've created a, a, a jab apartheid system so that right now where I live, the, the unvaccinated are not allowed to go to cinemas, cafes, restaurants, sporting events, barbers, hairstylists. It, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, okay? Because the idea is that those who are not jabbed, and that is they, those who have not decided not to take an agent that for which there are no long-term data, whose ingredients still remain shrouded in a great deal of mystery. And I think you've seen recently that now Pfizer or FDA's petition not to release all the Pfizer documentation 
Um, and then they use the Pfizer thing here until uh, like for 75 years. Yep, this that's is, the latest. That's the latest. So, so uh, my, my question has always been, we should, we should have informed consent. We should know what's in this thing, what it's supposed to do, what it's not supposed to do. Uh, people, many people think, well, it's just like the measles vaccine. You get it, you don't get the measles again. And everything's great. Well, that's not really true. We know about the mRNA technology. We know that it neither prevents transmission nor infection. We know about the trillion spike proteins that are manufactured. We know that they go everywhere in the body, I think, at this point. Um, And I believe that people have a right to bodily autonomy. I think this is in the Nuremberg Code. It's in New Zealand Bill of Rights. It's in uh, every human rights document around the world. And yet we see governments around the world, Austria, uh, unbelievably so, and Germany, where they had troubles in the 30s that were very similar to discriminating against people and segregating them. Uh, And now even here, uh, telling us that uh, we're really really the unclean, we're dangerous. And I'll give you an example. I do some theater work, directing and acting and whatnot, my local community theater group uh, has informed me that if if an unvaccinated, unvaccinated, and I don't even like to use that term, I'd say unjab, an unjab person is not allowed to participate in rehearsals, productions, cannot even go to one of the uh, presentations, one of the productions. And, and I ask why, how? I ask the question continually, how is a healthy person a danger? Tell me how a healthy person poses a danger to someone else. And no one can answer that question. They, they keep telling me, oh, it's just about safety, safety. What's unsafe about a healthy person? And especially if a healthy person's in among the jabs who are ostensibly protected, what do they have to fear? What are they worried about? The pressure to get jabbed is intense. Here, they're trying to jab kids, young kids. I know two teenagers, for example, who wisely, in my opinion, don't want anything to do with this thing. And they're in the lowest risk group imaginable, right? They don't, they mean they hardly get sick if they get the, the bug. Uh, and they are now barred from sporting competitions for which they've trained for many years. And they're barred from socializing with their peers. I mean, this is, what kind of society are we creating when we do this? Matt, this is atrocious. This is, I think it's evil, honestly. I think it's absolutely evil. And on top of all that, those doctors like myself who have tried to establish a dialogue and who have raised questions about these things and who've wanted to debate these things, really, you know, all these issues with, with science, which science is not, by the way, science, there's never one science. There's no the science. Science is a fluid enterprise. It's always about knowing, adding, changing, revising, debating, etc. Uh, virtually any doctor who has spoken out now is has been uh, basically attacked by the medical council. Um, I've had my license suspended. Uh, I've lost my position because I, in part, because I uh, did not was not going to go along with the mandate that all healthcare practitioners get jabbed. I couldn't abide that. And I took that opportunity to resign my position and retire from my work after 16, almost 16 years, with a very high caseload, by the way. And furthermore, uh, because I was accused in having discussions like I'm having with you, uh, you know, discussions about the jab, about health policy, about natural immunity. And that's a bad word nowadays. Do you know that? Natural immunity. You can't say natural immunity. That's considered misinformation. So right what are we living in? You know, it's, it's absolutely insane. So anyway, so I've had my license suspended by the medical council. I've, I've, seg- I've severed my ties with them via common law as uh, uh, very recently anyway. And whatever they're going to do, they're going to do. But I want to get out of it. And I'm actually glad I'm out of that corrupt, sick organization and, and the medical establishment generally, because I am really... I'm very disappointed at my colleague, at my colleagues, doctors around the country, around the world. Many doctors who know better have sat back 
and said nothing, and they've watched this tremendous cavalcade of adverse events and deaths occur all around the world connected with these jabs, and they're silent or they're complicit. So that's basically where I am right now. I'm unemployed. I've got no uh, medical license under the uh, medical council. And, um, and I'm living in a society where there is a, a jab apartheid system at the moment. Well, I thank you for your courage. I think when this dark no nonsense finally passes, now people like you will be remembered as heroes and then people who complied will be actually embarrassed. I mean, I don't wish punishment on anybody, but I think embarrassment will come. As I've observed it on the, when the Soviet Union fell apart. That's what happened. The people who were compliant and who were on top of the hill, all of a sudden they were embarrassed. And yeah. So well, I, you know, it's interesting. I visited Soviet Union, in, I went to St. Petersburg about six or seven years ago to give a talk on Skryabin. And I've always had a love for Russia and Russian literature. I grew up with Russian literature, uh, the greats Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Solzhenitsyn, for example. And I knew Ignaz, uh, Alexander's son, who was a conductor and a pianist. And he went to Curtis, by the way. Uh, in any case, um, so I know through my readings and through contact with people from Russia whom I've worked with uh, at Curtis, for example, and other places, a bit about how the system operated, how the system worked. And I, I have the impression that Pravda uh, was universally understood not to be truth by everyone who read it, despite its title. So we're, we're at a point now where our government, our prime minister said that they, they were the single source of truth about COVID. And I find that to be an astonishing statement, the single source of truth. I, I can't think of anything being the single source of truth about anything, actually. Uh, but when you're up against a mentality like that, then you realize there are other agendas at work. Um, and they're complicated, but I'll, I guess I'll leave it at there. It's, it's really astonishing. That, that is astonishing. And by the way, well, by the time my generation was around, everybody knew that Pravda was nonsense. But people had to pretend in their public positions to say all those phrases about the victory of communism and blah, blah, blah. But I think that for the generation of my grandparents, for example, they genuinely accepted it. It was sacred to them. That was their meaning. And so it took three generations, essentially, to figure it out. Yeah. Oh, so sooner or later, this will pass too. But I wonder what your thoughts are on what you think in the heads uh, of the other doctors is. I mean, what do they realize that they are being semi-raped and they're also kind of betraying their profession? Or do they, are they subscribed to the mainstream narrative sincerely? Do they see... Adversify. I mean, like, how, how does it work on average? I'm sure everybody's yeah. different, but... It, it's hard to say. See, we, I'm, I'm part of this group called New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out for Science. We have a website, nz, nzdsos.com, and we've been trying to get other get material out there for people to be informed. And I think we have a membership of about 120, 130, which is pretty, pretty amazing. We started out very small. Um, I think virtually all of us now are under investigation of some kind or under attack or going to be under attack by the medical council uh, for daring to offer a, a, a questioning, uh, a different, different way of viewing things. Anyway, what can I tell you? Uh, I actually think the truth about this thing is pretty self-evident, but I don't want to come up as an, I don't want to speak as an oracle. And I tell people, you better look at the stuff yourself, but look at, look at everything and look at the reality and look, for example, when you have fully vaccinated countries that are getting this COVID, uh, uh, how do you explain that? How good are your uh, jabs? How long do you think you're going to get away with getting these jabs and what will they lead to? I'm sorry, I'm running off a little bit. I don't know what the general run of, of general practitioners are thinking or what or whatnot. I think there are quite a number of people who are just... Uh, afraid to speak out, they're completely afraid because they're going to get slammed. 
And I think that I and others have been held up as examples. If you try to speak out or say anything against the single source of truth, we're going to come after you. And so people need to make a living and they do go about doing their business. Uh, so I don't know. I can't speak about all this, this vast sea of other doctors, except that my interaction with them, very few knew anything about very basic things like early treatment options. Early treatment is critical. You really want to keep people healthy. That's one of the main things you do, right? You try to treat early, try to do all those preventative things and, and the, all the treatment protocols that Dr. McCullough and Pierre Corey and the Zelenko and the frontline doctors are doing great work. We do, if it's really a pandemic, you do it, right? I, I don't think these people know anything about that. In fact, they, they are also, they've said nothing about early treatment here. They've suppressed the whole topic here. Uh, they've taken people to task who are trying to prescribe some of the early treatment protocols. It's, it's a terrible thing. And that leads me to believe this is, there, is, there has to be another agenda. This is not about health. This is about control. And it's devastating. There are, on the other hand, there are people who are trying to stand up and are speaking up and speaking out. And I know two other, I have two other psychiatric colleagues who are fighting the mandate that they be jabbed to retain their jobs. So uh, they're trying to initiate a legal action, but uh, I know quite a number of people who just lost their jobs. School teachers, expert people who taught for years, lost their jobs, okay? Out of, because of this mandate that you, you have to be jabbed to, be, to, to continue teaching. Midwives, nurses. And I know a lot of people, well, I know quite a few nurses and, and teachers and other people who have gotten the jab quite reluctantly. They did not want to get it. They got it under duress, under pressure because they had no option. They're raising kids on their own or they've got mortgages and they've got, they got to feed themselves. They had no option. So what kind of government would do that to people? And in the interest of what? I have to I ask the question, how many people have actually been affected by COVID here in New Zealand? It's a minuscule number overall. And yet, when we had, there was one case in Auckland that tested positive with this faulty polymerase chain reaction test. They locked the whole damn uh, place down. It's, it's, it, to me, it's complete insanity and it's actually depraved and it's evil. I have to agree with your conclusion. Well, to me, the fact that they were actively attacking early treatments, like, to me, that was a litmus test. Because oh, exactly. That, yeah, you know, you talk about, about health. Yeah, go ahead. Talk, sorry. Um, right, you talk about my awakening of this. I'm following this very closely. And my thing is, you know, I've read books like, I don't know if you know the book Aerosmith, um, Sinclair Lewis. It's about a doctor and it's about, it has to, and actually it's about a pandemic and, and how a doctor approaches the pandemic at the end. Anyway, one of the great dreams of all doctors really is to, find a cure for something that's hurting people, right? You know, so there's a, a bad thing out there. My gosh, you, you race, you find a cure, you help people, you treat people. And what I noticed with this was that there was virtually nothing about any kind of treatment. They were just letting people sit around, get really sick to the point where they get got in the hospital. And then when they got to the hospital, it was too late to do anything and you know what to do. It was a terrible thing. And there has been so much good work, like by Zelenko and, as I said, McCall and these other people, you know, to find treatments to help people, which actually, for which is a, there are a number of very positive studies that actually seem to work. I think Zelenko has treated 7,700 patients. Only two of them died, and, and they were early on. This uh, Dr. Chetri from South Africa is a cohort of 6,000 people with his regimen. No one's died. No one's going to the hospital. Very few people going to the hospital. So there are a lot of data all around the world now about helping people, not just letting them sit, get it, sit around and wait, and then you get sick. So I saw that the suppression of early treatment, the non-encouragement, uh, the, the active work against early treatment, I think that's criminal. All right? I think I, I find no excuse for that. I think it is criminal. And I think when this passes, and I have no doubt that sooner or later it's going to pass, whether it's now or several generations later or a thousand years later, but it's going to pass. And then people will look back 
and they will react the same way people are reacting today to Nazi Germany. Like, what, what was wrong with them? How couldn't they see that? And then, well, if it's soon enough, then probably some of the compliant people will try to get book deals to write about how they always knew <laughs> that that was wrong, because that's how it usually goes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, to me, that's such a classic story of trusting the betrayers, a person going to the hospital with full trust in American medicine, well, American medicine in my case, because I'm in New York, and then essentially being murdered and treated like nobody with no rights or put in a ventilator, sedated. And yeah. so to me, that's the ultimate thing where you see the face of the machine, essentially, and you're on your, on your own, finally, after trust, trusting the who you shouldn't have trusted. Yeah, I tell you one thing, I'm so, I am so, I, yeah, I've been in a way, I've been living in a bubble uh, outside of what's happened to American medicine and medicine generally. You know, in my training, I was very lucky. I went to a great medical school. I went to a great hospital for my internships and my psychiatric training, Pennsylvania Hospital, the Institute of Pennsylvania Hospital. And the ethos there was, it was patient-centered. It was always uh, the, the, the physician, the psychiatrist had autonomy in conjunction with the patient. You did what you had to do. You tailored your treatments. All the internists I knew, the intern, my internist back there, Paul Cohen, these were great, good, great doctors. You know, these were not corporate hirelings who followed algorithms and who had no imagination. I mean, I'm astonished. That's what's happened in the 40, 35 years or so. It's been medicine's turned into a bunch of corporate hirelings who follow a cookbook. They call them best practice guidelines or the algorithms that the, the uh, institutions put out. That is, that is not medicine, really. That is a very, that's a skeleton of what medicine should be. People are highly complex. They're highly individual. Um, there is no one size fits all for anybody. You've got to take good histories. You've got to know everything about someone before you prescribe treatments and take different approaches. And it looks as if that's all out the window because we have a single source of truth telling us just exactly what to do, not only about any medicine, but about everything now. It's, it's, I, I, you know, RFK's book, I don't know if you read it yet. Oh, it's, yeah, uh, it's a brilliant you. book. So important. It's a brilliant book. And by the way, and I understand he doesn't use a ghostwriter, he writes himself. He's a superb writer. It's a great book. Uh, and my friend Ed Curtin, who's in Massachusetts, did a fabulous review of it recently. I'll have to send you the link to that. He's a I great saw, reviewer. I saw that. It's brilliant. You see that Ed is great. He's just a friend of mine. He's a wonderful reviewer. Anyway, RFK says this is it. This is maybe the battle, not just of our lifetime, but of all of history here. Okay, what are they trying to do to us? To enslave us? To digitize us into oblivion? to really use this, what I understand is this uh, very effective social credit system in China already. Um, I, you know, I, I, as a, growing up in America, growing up in Philadelphia, where the uh, Declaration of Independence was signed, the Constitutional Convention was held, uh, these principles of liberty and freedom are in, in our, in my bones. I mean, that's, to me, the, the good America, the great America, not America, the rampaging state who's created wars everywhere, done all this terrible stuff, but the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and these unalienable rights, these are unalienable and they pertain to everybody, not just Americans, okay? And now we find ourselves all around the world that governments, institutions, whatever you want to call them, the corporate overstructure, wants to take wants to lead us to believe that they can do anything they want with us they can give us put something into our bodies that we do not want and not to mention our minds they do enough of that with the propaganda but to put something into our bodies that we have made choices not to want to get well Again, they want to overturn the what von der Leyen and the EU now wants to get rid of the Nuremberg Code. Isn't that interesting? It okay. is interesting. Yeah, so it's so it's a terrifying time, but I will say that the people I've met here 
and I, uh, the newly formed groups of people who are thinking along our lines about living life and not being afraid, not living in fear. You know, there's a great Russian novel, Blomov. I'm sure you've read it. Okay. Uh, that's about a guy who lived, didn't get out of his bed, right? He just he's lay in his bed all the time he, to be safe. So do we want to live life in, in a little room and order everything from online and get it delivered and just do nothing? Is this the vision of the future so we can be safe, safe? There's no safety in that. Well, the safety myth is just a myth because how safe are you if you do away with your own immune system and then you're stuck with going to the hospital and being murdered there? That's not very safe. And well, that is not exactly. That is not being safe exactly. And I, uh, as I said, you know this this thing they're trying to force on people. Look up the ingredients. Look at the, the, the tremendous number of adverse events. We're only a year and a year and a half into it anyway. We don't know any of the midterm or long term consequences. If you you couldn't do it, you couldn't do a drug trial, and have a drug come out with a trial like this, with this kind of data, they'd squash that drug within minutes, right? It would fail. But somehow for the magical jab, it gets a free pass. Apparently there are no, no contraindications. I mean, I, I'm trying to find, what are the contraindications here? Over here, I think the one contraindication is you have to be allergic to pro propylene glycol or something like that. But the number of exemptions there, they have clamped down They've made such draconian impositions on who can be exempt from this. It's, it's absolutely evil, okay? So this thing, apparently, according to the myth, the myth of safety, the people who make the myth of safety they make the myth of the, 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 the perfect, wonderful, safe as water jab, right? It's, it's safe as water, right? No contraindications. Uh, I had a discussion, I'll tell you something very interesting. I happened to run into a, a man I, I hadn't seen in about 10 years. Okay? I used to, he used to live near in my old neighborhood around here in New Zealand. And, and we were talking. He said, oh, by the way, I had, a, I had a heart attack about a month ago. I said, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then I said, I asked the question. I said, you know, well, this, you don't mind if I ask, but did you get the jab? He goes, oh, yeah, I had the, the second jab about three days before the heart attack. Oh. I said, gee, I'm sorry. But he had made no connection. He didn't consider the heart attack to be related to the jab. There was no report of an adverse event. He just thought, well, this is just what happens in life, you know. And he went on and on his merry way. And he's got, you know, he's resigned having some cardiac disease and whatnot. But I think that's a measure of the level to which people have been stupefied. If I were to give a, a medicine to somebody, three days they had a heart attack, I can guarantee you people would be breathing down my neck saying, what, did, what the hell happened over here? Why did, you, why did you give this medicine? How could this patient get the heart? We have to look into it. Even if there's nothing wrong, you want to look into it, right? Of course. There's, a, there's some kind of correlation. But the level of, of acceptance and the level of propaganda, that it's just astonishing to me. It's absolutely astonishing. People say, you're an anti-vaxxer. Well, first of all, whether I'm an anti-pro-vax, that is not the defining characteristic of a human being. Since when did vaccination assume the status of like the gold standard of whether you're a noble or ignoble human being? That's ridiculous, right? But I've had vaccinations. My kids have had vaccinations. Okay, good. I, this, I, if I choose not to have a vaccination, even a good one, even a, a traditional one that actually works, that's my choice. That's my choice, okay? Well, I think right. on the positive side, a lot of people started doubting things and researching things that they would have never researched or doubted prior to this because the past two years have presented us with such an exaggerated cartoonish version of corruption that many people who would have never in their lives even thought about researching anything like that. They were just faced with the inevitability they have to. And now yeah. they're looking into the entire system and maybe they were lies before and maybe the things that they just took for granted, maybe those things weren't true either. And I think that's a very useful exercise. Whatever the conclusion is, de depends on the person and the experience and 
know, what they look into, but I think that's necessary for every human being to have a direct relationship with the world. And as far as the degree of gaslighting, it is quite astounding. And I'm actually mad. I'm mad about people, innocent people being so abused because yeah. to me, I used to be, I, I used to be in a, an abusive marriage, like classic, very bad. And that was one of the reasons why I did not really go for being terrified by this thing so badly because initially I got terrified just like everybody, but like terrified as in like, you don't know, maybe it's a deadly virus. You have to be careful. You have to wash the surfaces and all that. But then very quickly when I saw the messaging and the messaging was identical in tone to what my abusive ex was saying, as in don't trust your senses. If you have any doubts about what you're told, you're a bad person, you have to obey. You, you know, don't have contact with people or things like that. I was like, wait a second. I know I, I've seen this movie. It wasn't very benevolent. I cannot do that for the second time because the first time it was very painful. So that was one of the reasons that actually helped me. And also, actually, I was sick and I definitely didn't even think about going anywhere near a hospital. But yeah, it was right. Very yeah. Heavy. It was intensely, it was intense suffering. And through the degree of that suffering, I remembered again, I was reinstated in my feeling that life is worth living and life means being fully alive. Life, life means not being afraid. And that's what life is. So it doesn't mean that because the disease caused suffering. Now I have to spend the rest of my life under the table. That's just not an option. So. Well, exactly. And I think you made a beautiful parallel to this, this relationship of an abusive, uh, an abusive marriage or an abusive relationship where you're told you can't trust yourself. You just have to obey. And and the and the really the victim is turned into uh, kind of an abuser by the real abuser. It's a very sick, perverse psychology, and that's all. It's all over with this whole thing. Okay, they're doing the same. They really are doing the same thing. You know, this blackmail, this extortion uh, to get this jab, uh, not to uh, not to do, not to have informed consent, really. You know, not to look at all the ingredients, not to show us transparently what the deals are. What's Pfizer's deal with these different co countries? What do they have in, in that uh, in that sweetheart deal? Okay, or Moderna or any of these things. Um, so it goes in all those ways. Um, one of the other things too is you now my friends Libby Andros and John Kirby have done this series on the pandemic. Which has been that's been a tremendous service to all of us. And I remember the very end outset. You remember they interviewed John Ioannidis, this guy, you know, that one of the most highly cited statisticians, epidemiologists in the world, saying, well, "We're looking at the numbers. Yeah, this doesn't look. This looks pretty much like maybe a bad flu." And they have had such a beautiful record of interviews with such luminaries, and uh, again. That gives me hope that we have good, great work out there. People have stepped up to the plate. That these filmmakers and producers are 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 helping us to enlighten ourselves and get to the truth, you know. Uh, and that's been wonderful. So I, I'm also been wonderful. I haven't seen so many. I'm looking around. There's so many accomplished, talented people I never knew existed. My God, I feel so uh, like inferior. They got 5,000 degrees. They've done physics and medicine and nuclear this and whatever. And they, and they know about everything and law degrees and medicine and, and uh, who knows what. Uh, they're all, they're out of, they're, I, can't, I can't believe how accomplished these people are. And, but they're the ones who are speaking up. You know, they know or they can smell a rat when, they, when a rat's running around. Oh, that, that is beautiful. I think the past two years really brought out the best and the worst out of us. And my life in America, at least, has never felt more real than what it feels now, amazingly, because everything under pressure, everything came out. And by the way, Libby and John are so wonderful. I love them so much. Yeah, aren't they great? So, yeah, they're I'm great. so grateful for great. their work. Yeah, they're really and, great. Uh, but I always, every time you mention New York, I love New York. I spent a lot of time in New York. My father is from New York. Uh, it's a great place. Uh, well, I don't know if it still is, but, you know, there's, I think I've mentioned before, there's this famous uh, line in Casablanca where, uh, where Humphrey Bogart's sitting down with the, um, uh, with the, behind the Major Strasse, 
And he's asked by one of the Germans there at a table, and uh, this is occupied, this is uh, unoccupied France, Casablanca. Um, well, um, how would you like it if the, the Nazis were in New York, something like that? And Humphrey Bogart says, well, there are certain areas of New York I wouldn't advise you to try to invade. You know, there was this feel about New York. New York's a tough place. We're not going to take this kind of stuff, right? But what happened to that New York? Like, I'm, it's like a different New York has happened. It's Where's that forward. tough? What happened? No, it is actually, it is, it is heartbreaking because I think that's the gaslighting. I think they just really, well, from what I researched, a team of psychologists was hired and you know, high-end consultants were hired to devise the plans on how to scare people. And so that was by design. Yeah, right, and exactly. You're exactly right. That. They've turned the, you know, New York is erupted to be in a very tough place of, you know, really uh, hard fighting. You don't mess with them, right? And now everybody's forming the lockstep or goosebump, I should say, for this stuff. It's terrible. Early in the pandemic, when our mayor, I think he suggested some kind of a reporting system to report people who weren't following the pandemic measures of social distancing. And that was met with like cursing, like, you know, like bad words. Yeah. Not today. Not today. It makes such a difference. I know. And even over here, too, this idea of snitching. The last thing you want to be is a rat. You don't rat on your neighbors, your friends. You don't. Nobody does that, right? And they've been, they were encouraging this kind of thing, you know, and it's terrible. But but I would like at some point to talk about some of the other things, uh, maybe some artistic things. I think one of the ways to stay alive in terrible times, as a lot of people know, like uh, Havel and other people and everybody, you know, is through creativity and the, the really the triumph of the human spirit. And, um, and I think... No matter what happens, we have to preserve that. That's that is our 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 beautiful bastion. That's why I write. I you know I, I mean I've done theater, a lot of theatrical stuff, and some film, and a lot of poetry, and I've written quite a number of books. And uh, and I'm very uh, actually I, I wrote this last book which you have, Olympia, and it was probably about yeah six years into thinking anyway, and. And I'm very happy with. I'm very proud of this book. I, I feel as if this is something that um, uh, brought a lot of things together for me. So um, hopefully there'll be other books as well. Right now I'm barred from doing anything theatrical, and uh, which is quite a uh, quite challenging. But I'm hoping that we get a good break in the next three or four months, and and maybe things, maybe the uh, maybe things really will change. Well, you actually you stole my question because my next question to you was going to be about your writing and your books. So thank you for preempting uh, the thought. Okay, and yeah. and then to ask you also what initially brought you to your writing career. And I also have another book by you. So yeah, oh, right. thank you. Yeah, Venetian and Rose, yeah. Your writing is beautiful. So thank you very much. So what brought you what what made you into an author initially? What was the well, I was always I was, a, I was a writer from being from a teenager from my teenage years, and I was always writing poetry and and uh, you know short stories and whatnot, and uh, and I was also when I went to Trinity College in Dublin uh, as an undergraduate, I had a year abroad there, and I got involved in the theater when I was there. And I came back to the States and I kept up some theatrical pursuits. And, but I was always writing in some way or other. But I think, honestly, I think I was a, a writer who didn't quite have something to write about until, until I became more mature, until I, I involved myself. I got my hands dirty in the world of living. And a lot of the world of living for me was the world of medicine, the world of uh, psychiatry. And life, okay, and um, and I believe that the move to New Zealand really helped to kind of catalyze uh, things to allow me to really, re really uh, gather my energies and start writing in a way that I think I'm uh, um, I'm I'm happier with uh, as as being decent writings, not just. You know, there are people, you know, sometimes you have the impulse, you want to write, you want, it's like you want to shout, you want to say something, but you have nothing to say. I think that 
everything that I had stored within me was coming to the surface so that I could finally put it together and say the things that I felt impelled to say in my poetry and my plays and my uh, theatrical things and my, even my little films and my novels, especially since I've come here. So, um, so I've written a few, I've written, uh, oh, anyway, I don't want to get into everything I've written, but, um, I wrote two very, I think, very funny books that are set in New York, and they involve an uh, accountants, kind of the amorous adventures of, uh, of some goofy accountants. I think they're quite funny, but I think they're funny because the language is very, it's all in the language, okay? Uh, and that's why I think they're quite uh, funny. And the Venetian rogues, Olympia really comes out of Venetian, one of the characters in Venetian rogues, and, and that's a different kind of writing altogether. Um, and those books are linked. Well, thank you for being so multi-talented. And also thank you for demonstrating that life doesn't end when a totalitarian regime sets in. It's, you know. Well, that's, a good, that's a good point. I mean, and you know, Solzhenitsyn would say that as well. Solzhenitsyn, that tremendous hero uh, doing what he did. I don't know what to say. I mean, uh, you and your work are doing the same thing and, and people have to continue to celebrate or humanity, and as I said, well, you know, the group of people I've, I've gotten in touch with over here who are these believers in in liberty and question the single source of truth. These are all to a person, animated, really lively, really good people. It's been such a pleasure to come into contact with with this group of people I would never really have known necessarily, uh, and to see that they they all. They've all gotten such tremendous spirit and such goodness. And I think the other thing, too, I've used the word evil a few times here. I really think I've used that in my life. I, can't, I think I've probably used the word evil about half a dozen times in my life until recently. And I can't think of any other word now to describe what's going on. And I tell people evil isn't the devil with horns and the tail and the, the monster evil. Is, is smiling, is just go along, just don't make any noise, just play ball, just let it happen. That's, that's really evil. Evil has many, many guises, okay? And the evil we have to be concerned about is the evil that's trying to convince us that we should be apart from each other, we should have to take something and violate our bodies even if we don't want that that we should look askance at people who cherish their own liberty, uh, that we should be considered dangerous to each other. We have to wear masks all the time or we have to keep a distance. This, this is really, is this the world we want to live in? Who wants to make that kind of world? Who wants to live in that kind of world? Well, the people who want to make that kind of world on top are probably very, 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 very sick on the inside. And I, like, it's impossible to guess what's in their heads but whether they want to do it because they think of themselves as saviors or whether they want to do it because they like killing people, doesn't matter because the end result is more or less the same if we accept it. So to me, the main battle is the battle on the inside. And I think what they're tr really trying to make people do is self-betrayal. And that's kind of an internal trick of, because when a person self-betrays, the person becomes food. And then hopefully there is some kind of a kind growth coming out of it and that can involve great pain but then after great pain hopefully there's some kind of a resolution but self-betrayal that's a great that's a great point by they're trying to convince us to betray ourselves and that gets back to the abuser psychology really doesn't it the same kind of thing only on a large scale and yep. we have to fight against that and i i believe we're going to win that fight i i, I really do um I think I think we have good on our side. You know, we're we're kind people trying to do the right thing, trying to celebrate the best of humanity, not the worst. Not the worst is fearful, suspicious, vindictive, get rid of people. And you know, I know you know about history, human history. The, the, the history of the world is not a uh, not necessarily a, a beautiful fairy tale. There have been battles like this going on, but they've been on a smaller scale because the empires were smaller. The places, the locales were smaller. There were always despots and tyrants and 
and terrible things and extirpations and I know you know all this, but we are now faced with something that is so global and so uniform. Uh, it's really terrifying. And that's why as, our, as RFK Jr. says in his book, this is, our, this is a battle for our lives. This might be the battle for all of our lives, all of, of our time. And, uh, and this is no time to sit back and be complicit. I like to be remembered more from my writing, really my novels, I wish people would read them, than anything else. Uh, because I think there I am really most, I guess the best of me. The best of me is in these writings, my poetry, my novels, and these artistic creations. And, uh, and I hope that, uh, I hope that they, I hope people do check in on them and, I, and read them at some point. And, um, and I hope that they themselves engage uh, in creative enterprises. I always, I came to the conclusion, you know, working in, as I did in analysis and, and with the Curtis kids, you know, people, unless you cultivate some element of creativity within yourself, um, life is going to be a much poorer experience. But if you can, if you can do that, and everyone is creative in some way, we all have our own different ways of being creative. That is really the essence of the joy of life. That's the joy of living and loving and creativity and play. These are essential functions of the human spirit. I have to agree. Well, thank you again for being such a wonderful and brave human being and with so many talents. So, well, last question. So where can people find more information about you or get in touch with you if they want to talk to you? So a website. Well, they, can just, they can just email me. That's all. Just, they, they can email me if they like. I have a website. I never, I haven't upgraded the website in a few years where my poetry is, but they can email me and I can send them links to things and, and whatnot. Um, okay. So, well, thank you again. It was wonderful to talk to you, and I'll uh, maybe we'll talk again. And thank, thank you very much, and thank you for the the work you're doing. Really, I really enjoy reading your pieces. They're brilliant, and uh, as a young person with such spirit and such uh, articulateness, it's uh, it's really an inspiration. So, well, thank you. Likewise, thank you. Bye. Thanks very much, Tessa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye.